Father, your word is not difficult to understand, and yet there are many things in it that are hard to accept. This morning we feel the fact that what you teach us about ourselves and the responsibilities we have to others made in your image, it feels very countercultural. So we ask your help. Would you open our ears, open our hearts? Would you let your word be implanted within us? Reshape us by your word this morning, Father, so that we would value life, human life, the way you value it. That we would care for others because you cared for our lives. Help us now as we come to your word to hear it aright. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Your baby has ten fingers and ten toes, and you're going to kill it. Those were the words that Melissa Cole heard on the way into an abortion clinic a little over 20 years ago. There were protesters outside saying a lot of different things, holding up signs, but that one sentence, for whatever reason made it from her ears down into her heart. She went into the abortion clinic with those words ringing through her mind. She went into the actual patient room. The abortionist came in and started the procedure as she was thinking about those thoughts. And she said it was that thought that caused her to call the whole thing off. She instead uh, delivered the baby, gave him up for adoption, his name is David Scotton. He's now a grown man. There's a documentary about Melissa and David meeting for the first time you can find online. One sentence. Ten fingers, ten toes. The difference between a life or a life extinguished. It's no exaggeration to say that our country lives under the dark specter of abortion. Best estimates we have, we don't have perfect numbers on this, but the best estimates are that roughly 800,000 abortions are happening a year. That puts us at somewhere around 58 million abortions since it was legalized some decades ago. One in six pregnancies ends in an abortion nationally. That's a sobering reality. I don't say this to depress us but to impress upon us how important it is for us to think about how God talks about human life and what responsibilities we have to care for that life as those who believe what Scripture says. We're going to finish off our series on God's beautiful design. This whole thing is based off of the concept of the image of God, that God intentionally made humanity in a certain way, and that means we have certain responsibilities to God and each other, how we live. We've seen how that plays out in genders, the goodness of being made in male and female, those two opposite halves. We saw how that played out in marriage, how God's good design was for us to have marriages that last a lifetime. And now finally, we will turn to the intrinsic value of human life. We'll see it in two sections. First, we'll see the intrinsic value of human life. And second, we'll see the call to care for human life. First, the intrinsic value of human life. And second, the call to care for human life. Let's begin in Psalm 8 with the intrinsic value of human life. I use that word intrinsic 
The flip side of that would be extrinsic. Intrinsic just means from within yourself. Something has it just by being. Extrinsic would be something has it by earning it or producing it or having it given to it. We'll see the intrinsic value of human life from Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 8 is a beautiful bit of Hebrew poetry. If you're familiar with Hebrew poetry, you'll know that parallelism is a really important uh, tool that's used in how we read Hebrew poetry. One of the most obvious of those is when something begins and ends in the same place. Uh, You could look in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The way it begins is the same way it ends. In verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You could call it bookending. You could call it a top and tail. When I was teaching junior high students, I used to call it an Oreo. Whatever you want to call it, it's a, a poetic device to say this is what the whole thing is about. What's all made about? About the majesty of God seen in his creation. So all the rest of the psalm is about this topic. How does that break down? Well, it breaks down into two different sections. The first, in verse 2, it shows us God's majesty in an unlikely contrast. And then in verses 3 through 8, it's God's majesty in the created order from the top down. Three steps from the top down. So first let's look at the unlikely contrast. It says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, the contrast here is between God's enemies. You can think of a tyrant with an army behind him, someone strong and really opposed to God. On one hand, you have the God's forceful, strengthful enemies. On the other hand, you have the weakest, smallest example of the human race, babies. Look what it says. It says, because of your foes, that the, that the mouth of babies and infants were established, that, that God is doing something with the cry of a cuddly infant. He's doing something with the goo-goo gaga of the little kid that you go goo-goo gaga over. There's something deeply profound and unmistakable about someone made in God's image that even the greatest enemy of God has to work really hard to ignore. Uh, You know this anytime you've held a newborn baby. There is something magical about it, isn't there? If you look into those fresh eyes that have never seen your face before, you see the little hands, the little feet. You're not just emotional because of chemicals going off within you. The very fact that that little person has life speaks to the fact that God is an amazing creator. He is majestic. It doesn't matter whether you are the baby or you are a king in opposition to God. That reality is true. It's an unlikely contrast. God uses these little children and the senseless sounds they make to bring low the pride of even his enemies. An unlikely contrast. The second way that we see God's majesty is this top-down look through creation. So he starts out at the the top layer to the cosmos, and then he moves down in two steps after that, three steps. So first verses three through four, 
the cosmos. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Maybe you had this experience where you go out camping and you have that moment as you see all the stars up above you. Maybe it's looking at NASA images of giant telescopes that give us a peek at the parts of the universe that we never could see before. That feeling of smallness. I'm going to quote the great philosophers, the Animaniacs, um, a TV show I used to watch a lot growing up. Um, and they captured this well in one of their, uh, one of their songs. It's called, uh, It's a Great Big Universe. It goes like this. It goes, it's a great big universe, and we're all really puny. We're just tiny little specks about the size of Mickey Rooney. It's big and black and inky, and we are small and dinky. It's a big universe, and we're not. Um, It's a catchy way of saying the same thing. When you look up at the vastness of the cosmos, and you think about the fact that there are literally galaxies upon galaxies that we have not seen and may never see, That God, the artist, created all of these things that maybe a human eye will never, ever behold. And he did it just because he wanted to. Now, when you think about that reality, it can either make you feel really small and hopeless, or it can make you feel really small and cared for. That's what the psalmist says here. He looks at the vastness of the cosmos that God has made and says, what is man? that you would consider him, that you would care for him. He starts in the heavens and he steps down in verse five. Then he looks at the special creation of man. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That's very likely the angels. And crowned him with glory and honor. The way Hebrew poetry works, when there is a, Uh, Steps like this, especially when there's an odd number of them, very likely the middle one is where the emphasis is to be laid. That means that the emphasis in this whole section is that God's majesty is seen specially in the glory and honor given to humans, to his image bearers. That there is something that God shows about his might and his power and his beauty in the way he made people says that they're crowned with glory and honor. That's true of all humans, whether they are tiny babies or kings in opposition to God or someone on their deathbed. Just by being a human, you are crowned with glory and honor. You are that way because God made you that way. There's one more step down. This is how humanity fits in with the rest of the created order, verses 6 through 8. You have given him, that's humanity, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Now, this is really just saying the same thing that Genesis 1 and 2 said. God made male and female humanity. He made them specially. And then he gave them the task of ruling over or dominion, kingship over creation. He told them to be fruitful, to multiply, multiply, to subdue and to fill the earth. Now, now wrapped up in there, it certainly is a, an idea of stewardship. 
that God's image bearers must take care of the creation they've been given rulership over. And yet, that's not where the emphasis lies. As true as that is, the emphasis is on the fact that there is something unique, something special about humanity. They're not just another animal. People uniquely bear the image of God, and that means people uniquely are crowned with the glory and honor described here. Now, all this is to teach that there is intrinsic value to all humans. Anyone that's a person, anyone that is made in God's image has value, not because they add something to society or not because they can earn some status. They they have value because they are, because God made them. And what God crowns with glory and honor, his creation has no right to de-crown. Now, if you're like me, Maybe you have pro-life convictions and you have, would believe in the sanctity and value of all human life and uh, that I, I don't have to work very hard to convince you of that. Maybe you know this passage or other passages in the Bible that teach that reality. Um, but maybe if you're like me, uh, maybe you haven't taken that, uh, actually uh, t- taken that out to talk with someone that disagrees with you on those basic assumptions. So I remember... Um, having pro-life convictions, but really not having a pro-life foundation and going out and trying to have a conversation with somebody and quickly finding out that conversation didn't go the way I wanted it to. It turns out when you're starting with different assumptions, very often it doesn't feel like you're actually talking to each other. And I didn't find my conversation all that helpful or compelling. With that in mind, what I want to do is give you something that might be useful to you if you're talking with someone that disagrees with you on this basic idea that specifically life in the womb, so human life prior to being born, if they might disagree that that life is of equal in value with those of us who are human and are already born. Um, so this is a, something I used to teach my junior high students. It's not something I made up, but it's really helpful. Um, it's a four-step argument that you can use for someone that, to establish the, the sanctity of human life without using the Bible, okay? So it might be helpful for you. It's called SLED, S-L-E-D. If you're taking notes, I recommend you write them down because your way mind, your mind works, you'll probably forget what each of them stands for. So SLED, we'll go through it. it take us two minutes to do it. So first is S is for size, size. So if someone is telling you that a person in the womb is not a person, that a fetus is not a person because they are very small, smaller than a peanut to start, you can just point out that size is not an accurate way to determine if someone is a person or if someone has value. I do not have more value by being six foot two than my wife Precious who is five foot two. Shaquille O'Neal does not have more value than the shortest player in the NBA, Muggsy Bogues, as a human. We do not say as someone grows that they grow in their personness. Size is not a measure of whether someone is a person or has value. Second, the L, S-L, is level of development, level of development. So sometimes people will say, well, the fetus in the womb does not have a personhood because they're not developed enough. Maybe they're not conscious. Maybe they say they don't feel pain. But that's a, a fallacious way of thinking. Level of development does not establish whether someone has value or whether they are a person. My toddler 
Theo, who's 18 months old, is no less a human than the person I visit in the retirement home. Someone that has a higher order degree or maybe a higher level of intelligence is not more human than someone with a basic education or no education at all. If you were to somehow lose consciousness for a time, if your cognitive function ceased, that does not mean you are unable to be considered a human. Level of development, function, that, that's no way to measure a person. Third, S-L-E, E stands for environment, environment. Where you are does not dictate what you are. If I were to take you and put you in outer space, you do not cease to be human. If I were to take you and put you underneath the ocean, you do not cease to be a human. So why would someone in the environment of the womb cease to be a human? Place is not enough to establish someone's not a person. For fourth, D is for a degree of dependency. Degree of dependency. Just because you are dependent on someone or something for life does not make you any less of a person or have any less value. If you need a dialysis machine to sustain your life, you are not less of a human being. A newborn baby that needs its parents to care for it for many years is no less a human than those of us who are grown and quote-unquote self-sufficient. Now, I don't pretend that that argument will be airtight and will convince everyone on the spot, but at the very least, it will give them something to think about and might give you the opportunity to say, you know, there's another way you can think about where human value comes from. Let me tell you what the Bible says about this. Now, that leaves us with a really important thing that we need to at least make sure we cover this morning is how do believers put together the idea that life in the womb specifically is life made in the image of God and therefore life that must be valued. Well, I'll give you three texts. There's more we could use, but I think three that are helpful. First is Job 31.15. Job 31.15 says, Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? We have God creating, knitting together, individual people in the womb. Pretty, pretty obvious that Job thinks of people in the womb as people. Second one we can look at, uh, I mean, we won't look at it this morning, but uh, you probably know the story, Luke 1, 41. That's where Jesus and John the Baptist meet each other for the first time. It just so happens both of them are in the womb at the, that moment. Elizabeth and Mary meet and John the Baptist leaps for joy at meeting Jesus, even though they're both unborn at that moment. What I find to be the most helpful of them all comes from Exodus, Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25. Exodus 21, 22 to 25. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay the judge as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The uh, occasion here is a pregnant woman that ends up being collateral damage between two dudes that get into a fight. It results in the baby being born prematurely, 
And there's this question, what happens if the baby dies or if the baby doesn't die? Now, there's some translation issues there about whether it's talking about the baby or the woman that's harmed, but regardless how you slice it, it's obvious that the way God gave the law in Exodus, an unborn person is protected by the law and considered a person that must, there, there must be a punishment for harming this person. Now, there are other places we could go in the Bible, but I think that's sufficient to show why Christians have held this position that life in the womb falls under this category of life that is to be protected, made in the image of God. Just because a life is very early on in its development or very weak, just because a life is fragile does not make it not make it something we can discard just because we choose to. <clears throat> now, there are many different applications that could rightly be drawn from this idea of the value of human life. It certainly applies in the areas of racism and euthanasia and how we deal with disabilities, but we, we just need to realize that the moment we're in as a society and how directly the Bible speaks to this issue. You know, I used to give this talk to junior high students just a few years ago. And when I did, one of the things I would say is, well, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether uh, life in the womb is to be protected or whether a woman has a right to end life in the womb. But once you take it to a, a, a child that's been born, well, there's no argument at that point. At that point, everyone's on board with the, that person having value and, and uh, should be, needing to be protected by the law. And yet, right now, on our national scene, we have sitting governors that are openly talking about infanticide. We have moved from not just saying it needs to be legal to have abortions. Now we want people to celebrate having abortions. Realize the level of darkness that that implies. You have to work really, really hard to deny the value of the way God created little babies. And yet, we found a way to do it. And I don't want you to think it's just a national problem. Here in Indiana, the numbers are a little better, but nowhere close to where they need to be. Estimates from last year, is there were 7.5 thousand abortions in Indiana. That's one out of every 11 pregnancies. Now, I realize there are times where despite our best efforts, Despite us doing everything we can where some pregnancies do not result in a born live child. And that is, that's a hard thing. And yet it's an entirely different thing to intentionally end life in the womb. And to say that we should have the freedom to do so because it's happening in our body. We need to be able to call it for what it is. Taking of life that God has made is a form of murder. Now, as I say that, I know that there are many, many, many people that the only reason they contemplate even taking this step is because of just horrible circumstances in their life. I mean, 85% of all abortions come to single mothers. There is an intense pressure. How do you make it financially? How, how am I going to care for this kid? Uh, I get that. And yet if we take seriously what the Bible says, that this is a life, then that means that life 
is to be cared for and protected. Now, of course, we are Christians, and that means we believe in redemption. We believe in forgiveness. If you're here this morning and you've done something that you regret, I want you to hear me loud and clear this morning. Even if you've done something you've never told anyone about, maybe it was not speaking up when you could have intervened with someone that was going to have an abortion. Maybe it was you taking part in an abortion somehow. I want you to hear that there is forgiveness. There is a way back. Jesus died for that sin too. And if you'll bring this to the foot of the cross, you will find no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And as a church, I I hope that if someone were to be open about the fact that they had an abortion, that we would be the first to embrace them and the first to accept them as a brother or sister in Christ. Now, with that said, we need to be able to call abortion what it is, a sin. And we need to use what ability we have to prevent this evil from occurring. Some of us have political influence. If you have an ability to vote, you need to think carefully about how you try to influence our society on this issue. Certainly, if you have financial means, you can think about supporting various ministries and causes that would protect human life. Seek to help women to make the choice to choose life. I think specifically of life centers. We have two life centers employees that are part of our congregation. I know many of you support that ministry. They are really not trying to be political. They they really are trying to help women, to provide care, to convince them to choose life. And then even once they've gone down that road, even to provide counseling and support to help women to come back from that sin. We as a congregation, if we take seriously what God says, take seriously, he says that every life is made in his image and therefore every life is worth being cared for. And we need to think long and hard about how we will seek to be salt and light in a society that's gotten very dark on this issue. Now, oftentimes when we say these things about the issue of abortion, immediately we'll get shot back right at us. But, well, that's all well and good that you say you care about human life human life in the womb, but what about those who are already born? That's a great question. If we are serious about valuing human life, we do need to think about those who are already born. That brings us to our second point, the call to care for human life. The call to care for human life, most specifically to care for those who are already born. One of the cool things about the Bible is how it connects with itself Different books written at different times by different authors, quoting each other and making applications that maybe wouldn't have been obvious at first. Psalm 8 gets quoted in the New Testament a few times, but one of the times where it's most clearly done is in Hebrews chapter 2. If you have your Bible, flip over Hebrews chapter 2. In verses 6 through 8, Psalm 8, 4 through 6 gets quoted, and the cool part is it gets applied to Jesus. So check this out. Hebrews 8 verse uh, ch- Hebrews uh, chapter 2 and verse 6 What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him you made him for a little while lower than the angels you've crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet now I'm putting everything in subjection to him he left nothing outside his control 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So he takes Psalm 8 and says, you want to know how God crowned with glory and honor the human race. You want to know how that happened? Well, it's in the sending of Jesus, the man of all mans, the human of all humans, our representative. Jesus is the one that fulfills this call to be crowned with glory and honor. He continues, for it's fitting that he from whom and uh, <clears throat> from whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He's talking of Jesus. He says, how is it that God cared for the human race? Right back in verse 6. How is it that he was mindful of him, that he showed care for him? How was it that God did that to the human race? It's by sending Jesus into the world. Jesus, the sinless man that came to live the perfect life. Jesus, the innocent man that came to suffer for the guilty. Jesus, the most alive of any person that ever lived to die so that he could give us his everlasting life. This Jesus does all this, and how does that care get expressed? Well, do you, do you notice the brother language, that, that family language that starts coming out? He's not ashamed to call them brothers. You can look down at verse 14, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood. This is the language of family, which implies that no longer are these people God's enemies. They are now his children. They're brothers with Jesus. See, the gospel message is not that we've avoided the worst of all sins. It's not that we've earned our way into God's standing. It's that God would take an enemy and adopt him into his family. To give him all the rights and status and love of a natural born child. If you've been with us as we've studied the gospel of John, this truth came out early on. John 1, 12 and 13 but to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. How does God show his care for us? By sending his son Jesus so that we too might become adopted sons and daughters. And that reality becomes the foundation for why we turn around and care for others. Because God cared for us, we care for all people made in his image. Got one more text to take you on here. James 1.27. Describing what it means to live as an adopted son and daughter, what to live as a disciple. And he emphasizes care for the most vulnerable. 127, James. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction 
and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That word visit is the same exact word that's used in Hebrews 2.6 of God's care. To visit is to show concern and care for someone. God cares for us, so we turn around and care for others. It's one of the reasons why one of the things that Christians have given themselves toward again and again down through the centuries is earthly adoption. Because we are spiritually adopted, it only makes sense that we would give ourselves to the hard task of adopting earthly children. Don't don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not saying that this is the only way that we respond and care towards others. And yet realize how tight the parallel is. God cared for us, so we are to care for others. And God adopted us. How beautiful is it when we use the picture of adoption to demonstrate God's love to a child and to the world watching as we love that child. Adoption is not an easy thing to do. There's always a cost, a great cost. And very rarely is it paid for in dollars and cents. Adoptions almost always come with baggage of some sort or the other. Hurts that maybe don't surface until years later. Very often the love you pour out in an unconditional way is not reciprocated the way you had hoped. There's all sorts of complexities, many sorrows along the way. And yet even if it's not easy, friends, think about the impact that adoptions make. You want to talk about a mission field. What about opening up your home to bring someone to literally live as one of your children with no distinction and being able to tell them about Jesus as their mother and father? It's great impact and it shows something to the world that frankly doesn't make sense unless you value human life the way the scriptures teach us to. Adoption is too costly for it to make sense in great numbers. And yet, if every human life is worth something, if every human that exists is crowned with glory and honor, and if we have been shown the care of God by sending Jesus, then adoption should be something that all of us should at least consider. I wonder this morning if you would consider that question. What role might God have for you in the ministry of adoption? Maybe it's the opening up of your home to actually adopt a child into your family. Maybe it's not the right season for that or there's factors that don't make that possible, but maybe it's to support a family who does. I'm so encouraged by how many of our families have given themselves to this ministry, have really opened up their hearts and their lives to children Adopted them as their own sons and daughters. Uh, Just realize that if you are not in that category, our church has a number of families that are going down that road, and it requires a lot of support. It's a very discouraging, difficult road sometimes. And yet it's a road that's worth it because it shows a picture of God and his love for us in Christ Jesus. One of the reasons that we are so taking so much time on this this morning is that we're hoping to instill an adoption culture here in our family of churches. The 
College Park uh, family of churches includes our congregation as well as Fishers and Greenwood and One Fellowship and North Indy. And uh, we recently launched an adoption ministry that is designed to help support families that decide that the Lord has called them to this task. Now, there are financial hurdles to adopting. And so one of the things that that adoption ministry is going to do is try to help families financially go down this road. So next week, we are going to put our money where our mouth is on this. Um, The church is, uh, College Park Castleton will match up to $4,000 in a benevolence fund we're given that will all go directly into an adoption fund that will go to support the adoptions uh, by uh, members of our churches and the College Park family of churches. And I invite you to consider how the Lord might have you to... uh, to support an adoption through taking part in that benevolence offering next week. Now let's recognize again, dollars and cents can never be the full weight, bear the full weight of what it takes to adopt. And so as a church, we need to be committed to supporting families that adopt, to providing meals, to providing prayer, to providing encouragement, every once in a while to providing a date night, all the things that come with the pressures that adoption brings, we ought to joyfully bear those burdens together because it shows that we are all made in the image of God and it shows God has cared for us by sending his son, Christ Jesus. I don't mean to cover this topic to discourage any of us or make us feel bad about ourselves. Let's realize if we really believe that the scriptures teach the value of human life, it means that we must take action. Adoption is one of the best ways that we can encourage people toward choosing life. They have the knowledge that there will be a loving, supporting family there to receive a child. It can make all the difference in a single mother making a choice between life and an abortion. Realize that that is a beautiful picture, that picture of how Christ has loved us, that we get to live out when we give ourselves to this ministry. There was a man who experienced both of these adoptions. His name is Michael Reagan. He was the adopted son of Ronald Reagan, who became a Christian later in life. This is what he said about both of his adoptions. He said, my parents never referred to me as adopted. I was always their son. We are all adopted into Christ's love. But when you bring a child into your home, that's your child. If we're made in the image of God, that means we have intrinsic worth. And that means each and every human is worth caring for. Brothers and sisters, let's care for the most vulnerable, the children. Let's care for them with the love of Christ. Let's pray.